So let's turn then in our Bibles to the book of Romans, and I want to read once again those two verses that I read to you yesterday. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul is coming to the point where he's appealing for them to apply the great teaching and doctrine that he's been expounding for 11 chapters. And he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing, or the Greek word but means by, by proving for yourself, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are looking at, at the doctrine of man, and I have summarized a little bit where I'm coming from. I hold the view, as, as, we, see, as we study scripture, a view that man is a total mystery that uh, the natural man does not understand himself. He doesn't understand the world. It reminds me a little bit of that passage where Jesus was talking about himself. And he said, who, who do people say that I am? And his disciples said, well, something to Jeremiah or a prophet. And he said to them, well, who, who do you think that I am? And they said, well, we think you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You don't know this because of how clever you are or because you went to university or because of some ability of yours. It wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my Father revealed this to you. This is how you know who I am because the Father has revealed something to you. Well, Jesus was talking about himself when he said that. But I think the same thing could be true of the doctrine of man. Unless... Unless the Lord reveals this to you, 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 you won't see it. This is not something that flesh and blood ever sees. As I was saying yesterday, the average man or woman in this world, he looks at his problems in terms of his circumstances. He needs more money or he believes in democracy or he wants a, a better degree at university or, or he, he wants to improve his health. He's dealing with a the kind of circumstances of his life. Whereas the Bible doesn't just deal with circumstances, the Bible goes to our hearts. It analyzes us as, as uh, having a fallen nature, the heart of man. And the Bible's not just dealing with our circumstances. Jesus is not just dealing with our circumstances, he's dealing with us. I'll take away the heart of stone, I'll give them a heart of flesh. He's dealing with our actual nature. And this is something that only the Christian really sees. And so we've been following uh, along these lines. God has a great purpose for the human race. It's that we should be his image, his representation here in this world. And God's not given up on that, that purpose. It's not just that it's disappeared and gone. Not at all. And Hebrews says, we do not, we do not yet see all things put under him. But then he goes on to say, but we see Jesus we see him having become for a little while lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor. In other words, Jesus has done what we fail to do. Jesus has come into this world. He has been a second Adam. He has come under testing and probation, and he has passed the test, and, he's got, and he is crowned with glory and honor. The purpose that should have been true of us has been fulfilled in him. And so now the only way for us to fulfill our destiny is to follow him, 
is to let him bring many sons to glory, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. I, I like to preach this in, in India. I sometimes preach this in India. This is the way in which I preach it in India. You know, in India, people are out there in the bush and uh, they are so poor. They are so incredibly poor. And so the great ambition of every Indian guy living out in the bush is to get to some city where he can make money. He, he wants to get to Mumbai or Calcutta or Delhi. And, uh, but they didn't know how to do it. it. It's so sort of difficult to get to these big cities and they're so big. Mumbai is about 20 million. Uh, it's so dangerous and a third of the people are living on the streets. But what they do is the older brother goes there first. And some guy somehow gets himself to Mumbai. And he maybe lives in the streets or he gets some tin shack somewhere. He begins to survive. He learns how to handle the corruption and the crooks on the street. He makes himself a little bit of money until finally he's, he's, he's there living in Mumbai. And then what he does is he sends a message back to the family. And says now, he, he says, I'm brother number one and I've got here. I know how to survive. Now, send the next brother. Let's the next one come. And then the next one, and the next one. And finally, the whole family have moved to Mumbai or Calcutta or Delhi, wherever it is. Once Big Brother is there, he brings the whole family and shows them how to do it and how to live and how to survive in the big city. But you see, that's our position. Our Big Brother has got to the heavenly city. Our Big Brother has got to heavenly glory. And now he says, hey, I've got myself there. Now I can get you there. I obey the Lord, I can help you obey the Lord. I got to glory, I can help you get to glory. And Jesus pioneers the trail. This is the way Hebrews puts it. He pioneers the trail to heavenly glory. He is the firstborn among many brothers. He's our big brother, and he's going to get the whole family to the heavenly city. That's the way it is. He's getting us to fulfill our destiny. And this original plan of God to put all things under the human race, it is going to be fulfilled. It's not being aborted. It's not being given up. And God is bringing many sons to glory. And it'll go on and on. It begins here. It begins in this world. We begin to edit our inheritance by faith and patience. We inherit the promises, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. And he goes on. It goes on into the heavenly glory. And one day there's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This plan of God for the human race has not been aborted or given up. It's going to be fulfilled, only it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus. Adam lost it. A second Adam is bringing it back. A second Adam, as the great hymn of John Henry Newman put it, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. This, this Lord Jesus Christ has picked up the human race and made it possible for us to put our faith in Jesus and arrive in the heavenly glory, bringing many sons to glory. So that, that's the, uh, the purpose of God for the human race. But the story is that the first Adam failed. And in Adam, we failed as well. We all fell. And that's why we can't fulfill our destiny on our own. That's why it has to be through Jesus that we get to the heavenly glory. Well, those are the themes that I'm trying to work out. But uh, I've digressed a little bit somewhere in the middle of all of that. Uh, it's good to digress a bit and to think about what, the, what I'm calling the aspects of man. There are different aspects of man. And uh, I mentioned a lot of words yesterday, soul and spirit and body and flesh. 
Things like the, the inner man and the, the outer man. And some of them that you don't actually notice in our English translation. Sometimes uh, the Bible refers to things which are, uh, they don't make uh, very nice English. And so the translators smooth them out a little bit and, and uh, polish them up a little bit. Not only does the Bible talk about our heart, it talks about our stomach. It talks about our kidneys. It talks about our innards. Only we tend not to notice this because the, the translators uh, obscure it a bit. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse uh, 23, Jesus is looking at one of the, the churches and he says, I, I, you will know that I am the one who searches the kidneys. Now, we, we don't normally translate it like that, but, but that's what it says, that's what it says. Now, all the translations make it a bit more respectable. Uh, and the, the ESV that I'm reading says, I am the one who searches the mind. But the Greek word is the word for kidneys, the word nephros, which means, which means kidneys. And it uh, doesn't just mean the mind. Your kidneys are down here somewhere. And uh, in the ancient world, you, 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 you sort of thought of your head, your mind as being here, and you had sort of gut feelings here, uh, and you had all these things tucked away inside of you somewhere. And uh, you use these words to, to describe what's going on. And Jesus, I am searching the kidneys. I'm looking into the depths of your gut feelings. I'm looking at your mind. I'm looking at everything that's within inside you. The message says, I'll, I'll x-ray every motive. That's the, uh, the translation of Eugene Peterson in, in the message. His paraphrase. And you get words like, like the belly. Out of the belly shall flow rivers of living water. We don't go around talking about our bellies and our, and our kidneys very much. But, but you get all these words as well in the New Testament. And they're often covered up and obscured a bit because the translators make it a bit uh, respectable. You remember in the authorized version, if, you, if, you, if you're a King James Bible man, you'll know it says, put on bowels of mercy. And you wonder what on earth are, what on earth are bowels of mercy. But it, it's a way of, again, talking about your feelings and your heart and your motives. Modern translations will, trans, will tr- polish it up a little bit. Put on a heart of compassion, says the ASV. Put on tender mercies. There's another translation. Put on tender-hearted mercy. But, but the Greek is referring to, to, to your gut or your stomach or your feelings, the way you react to people. So there are all these words in the Bible referring to different uh, aspects of, uh, the, the, of the human person. I ought to say to you uh, that to understand all of this, you need to realize that the Bible is not a jargonistic book. The Bible doesn't have any jargon in it. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know that there's any word in the Bible that is a piece of jargon. I don't know there's any word that's a kind of technical word that's always got exactly and rigidly the same meaning. The nearest I know to it will be the word inheritance. The word inheritance does seem to have a very strict and and unvaried kind of meaning. But maybe that's an exception. But uh, generally speaking, there are no technical words in the Bible. Almost any word you find in the Bible where you think you know what it means, you could find another place where the same word is used with a different meaning. Even the word God is not technical. Remember Jesus once said, quoting the Psalms, when they, when they accused him for calling himself God, he said, well, haven't you read the book of Psalms? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. He's referring to the judges of ancient Israel. The judges in ancient Israel were called gods. They were little gods telling you what to do. Even the word God is not a technical word. 
You can find such other guys being called gods in, in, in the Bible. Even the angels are sometimes called gods. A word like justify, well, we, we, we normally think we know what it means. We know how Paul uses it. But even Paul can use it in different ways. In, in Romans 2, Paul uses the word justify to mean finally vindicate. In other places, Paul will use the word justify to be set free from sin in a legal manner. And the, our Bible... The word soul means all sorts of things. Often the word soul means the whole person. Remember how, if you, if you know the, the King James Version, incidentally, in translations, the word soul is appearing less and less. When you read the King James Version, the word soul comes a lot. When you read slightly modern translations, they're, they're not using that word anymore. The word soul is appearing less and less in modern translations. First, you remember in the authorised version, the 1611 King James Version of Romans 13.1. It says something like, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And it sounds a bit strange. You, you say to yourself, does it mean that, that only my soul has to be subject? If I, if I meet a policeman or I come to some red, red lights, my body can go through, but not my soul. You know, my, my, my soul is going to be subject, but my body is going to do what it likes. No, no, it doesn't do that. And strangely enough, strangely, that verse, let every soul be subject to the spiritual authorities. We might translate, let everybody be subject to the, to the governing authorities. We might use the word everybody when, when the world uses every soul. We actually talk about everybody coming. Does it mean that everybody came to church but they left their souls behind? We, we ourselves are, are very flexible and varied in the way in which we use this word. Did you know the word soul can mean a corpse? The word soul can mean a dead body. You can read in the, in the Old Testament, the number of souls smitten by the edge of the sword was so many thousands. He's talking about corpses and dead bodies lying upon the ground. The word soul can mean a corpse. That's something that, that Plato could never have said. So, what I'm trying to say to you is, these words are not strict pieces of jargon. None of these words have a rigid, single, invariable meaning. The word soul can mean person, it can mean life, it can mean appetite, it can, it, can mean, it can even mean a corpse. The word flesh can sometimes mean the sinful nature. Don't live in a carnal way, don't be carnal, don't live according to the flesh. Uh, but the Bible also says the word became flesh. Does it mean Jesus became a sinner? What does the word flesh mean in John 1.14? The word became flesh. Well, it just means a human nature. That's what it means. The word, the Son of God, the everlasting Son of God, became a human being. He took flesh. But it's only referring to human nature. It's not referring to anything sinful. But when Paul will say, those who live according to the flesh will mind the things of the flesh, well, he's talking about the sinfulness of our nature. The, the word, it's it, got a different meaning. When Paul says, the life that I now, I, I live in the flesh, I now, I live by the faith of the Son of God, the word flesh there really means the body. I'm here in this body, in this world, with all of the weakness of human nature. The, world, the, the life I live here in this world, I'm living it by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word flesh has got a, another meaning. You can find half a dozen different meanings. Look, look up any Greek dictionary. Look up flesh or soul or spirit. They'll, they'll give you anything from, from five to 20 different meanings of each one of these words. And so the, the biblical teaching is not scientifically laid out. It's not laid out in technical jargon. 
as though each word has got a kind of strict meaning. And so what that means is you have to take every verse as it comes. But don't try to read technical meanings in these words. Uh, if you do that, you'll confuse yourself. Just take every verse as it comes and don't try to uh, force any one particular meaning every time you come across this word or this word or this word. Let, let each verse speak for itself and uh, it'll be clear. Or I could put it to you like this. In the New Testament and, and in the language of ordinary people, the New Testament was written for ordinary people, the language of ordinary people is loose in its vocabulary, but tight in its logic. But the language of ordinary people is loose language. People use, use words in very different ways. They, they uh, are slapdash in the way in which they, they speak. But, uh, but normally, you can see what they're saying. They're saying something clear and logical, and it makes sense, but the vocabulary is loose, loose and slapdash. That's true of the, of the Bible. The Bible is very much a common man's book. It's written in very ordinary Greek. It's not written in slang. The, the Greek of the New Testament is not slangy. It's not the language of rough, guy, rough guys and tough guys upon the street. It's not the, the language of, of uh, dropouts of society. But it's not the language of philosophers and professors either. It's somewhere in the middle. It's the, lang the language of the marketplace. It's the language of uh, the ordinary person. It's not, it's not slangy and, and, and nasty, but it's not posh and superior and uh, elitist. It's somewhere in the middle. And it's the, the ordinary language of ordinary people. And uh, what that means is the New Testament is loose in its language, but tight in its logic. Don't get, don't get uh, too bogged down with particular words. That's good news for you. That's good news for you. Because you might say to me, well, you know, I'm not a great Greek scholar. I can't sort of uh, analyze every Greek word, you know, all these guys, and uh, I don't know what the Greek says. No, no, you don't have to be bothered with that. You don't need to be a specialist in Greek to understand the New Testament because the unit of meaning, can you follow this sentence? The unit of meaning is not the word but the sentence. It is the sentence which will give you a, a, a coherent meaning. The unit of meaning is not the particular word, which can be very varied and untechnical and loose. You, you try to tie things up in, in technicalities of words, you'll start making mistakes. The unit of meaning is not the particular word. You don't need to be a, an expert in, in Greek lexicography. The unit of meaning is the whole sentence. And the whole sentence will be clear enough in any translation that's reasonably literalistic. The translation is, is reasonably literalistic, not too rough and periphrastic. And uh, paraphrasing, you know what I mean by paraphrase, just putting in your own words what, what something is being said. If it's fairly literalistic, the, the total sentence will be clear. You don't have to be a kind of Greek expert, word by word by word. And in any case, those words are loose in their meaning. It is the totality of the sentence. I don't know how much I should be here talking about linguistics, but... Uh, I, I sometimes put it like this. Suppose I say to you, it got stuck in the jam. You, that's very simple English. There's no complicated elitist vocabulary in that, in that little phrase. It got stuck in the jam. But you're probably not very clear what I'm talking about. Although you know every word, you're probably not very clear what I'm talking about. But if I say I was sitting down with RT this morning and the fly was flying around the breakfast table and finally it got stuck in the jam, you now know what I was saying. 
If I say I was driving to, from Johannesburg to Pretoria the other day and my car was, was almost conking out, and you know what the traffic lights in Pretoria, and finally it conked out and, and it got stuck in the jam, it means something completely different. Same words. You're not quite sure what I'm saying, but the context gives it meaning. When I'm talking about flies flying around the jam pot, you know what I mean. When I talk about traffic going down a, a busy road, you know what it means. The context and the flow of the sentence gives the thing meaning. That's always the way in which you should read your Bible. And that's good news for you. It means you do not have to be the world's expert in Greek and Hebrew as long as you're following the flow of the thinking. The flow of the thinking, you will be all right. That's why, that's why the ordinary person can read the Bible. And uh, the Bible was written to very ordinary people. It was written to children. It was written to slaves. Remember how Paul will say, you children, obey your parents in the Lord. He doesn't say, you parents, when you get home, tell your children, I said. No, no, the children are there. You children, obey your parents in the Lord. He ex- when Ephesians is being read to the church of Ephesus, Paul is expecting the children to be there. He says to them, you children, obey your parents in the Lord. The New Testament was written to children, the slaves, to very ordinary people. There were very few intellectuals in the, in the early church, very few elitist people. They were all very ordinary people, generally speaking. And the New Testament was written to them. So when you, you're following all of these things, remember, the New Testament is loose in its language. Don't, don't, be, don't get caught up on technical jargon when you come to words like soul and spirit and flesh and these words. They're not technical words, they're loose words. Follow the flow of the sentence, follow the flow of where the writer's going. It will be quite clear to you if you follow the flow of where each writer is going. So I was saying yesterday that um, people argue a lot about how many parts there are in the human person, especially are there two or are there three? Is it body and soul, or is it body, soul, and spirit? I have to tell you, I'm not the slightest bit interested in any of that kind of talk. It's making the mistake that I've just, I've just been referring to. It's talking as though these words are highly technical terms. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes the words soul and spirit have the same meaning. When Mary says, my soul rejoices in the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, does she mean my soul's doing this, but my spirit is doing that? Is that what she means? No, surely not. She's just saying the same thing twice. My soul rejoices in God. My spirit rejoices in God. She's just saying the same thing twice. When Paul says, I'm praying that you'll be holy in soul and spirit and body, those things are obviously different. Uh, the, word is, the words are flexible in their usage. Sometimes soul and spirit mean the same thing. Jesus can say, I was grieved in spirit. Or he could say, I was grieved in soul. It's the same thing. Not two different things. The wording is loose and uh, untidy. It's a common man's book. Don't get stuck with the technicalities. Just follow the flow of each uh, sentence you come across. So, how are we to look at man? Is he one? Is he two? Is he three? Is he five? Is he ten? Well, I was starting off yesterday saying we should begin that man is one. We are unitary. We are a coherent entity. And, and although there are different aspects to, to the human person, they all affect each other, and I could say much more about that. Uh, I, I, I'm limited in time, but uh, the body affects every part of, of our life. You, when, when you're sick, you can't think very clearly. Not so, not so easy to pray, and uh, you're not rejoicing in God quite so much. Often, 
Sometimes the Holy Spirit just overrules it, and you have a, a power coming from nowhere that overrules the, the weakness of the body. When I am weak, then I am strong, said Paul. But often, often the, the kind of physical state you're in affects your whole person. And it's the other way around. If, if you are disobeying the Lord, you may well find yourself struggling physically. You may, you may find yourself getting headaches, and uh, modern medicine is very uh, aware of, of psychosomatic Problems, problems which are coming not just from, from physical things, but from, from a worry and anxiety and sometimes guilt and uh, those kind of problems. Medicine a hundred years ago didn't think that way. But today, the average doctor knows all about uh, stress and so on. We are a unit and every aspect of our being affects each other. And we have got to, uh, we've got to try to, um, how can I put it? To, to preserve this unity. We, we're meant to, to flow as a kind of a totality. I'm finding it difficult to put into words what I want to say, but the best way I can put it is just to quote some scriptures. You remember how the psalmist prays, Lord, he, he says, uh, unite my heart to fear your name. You know that verse? Unite my heart. Let me all come together. Let me do one thing. Unite my heart. Let me, let me be flowing in one direction, not be lots of bits and pieces and I've been double-minded and worrying about this. Unite my heart. Bring me all together. Unite my heart to fear my name. Fear thy name, says a psalm. Or remember how we read in James, that passage that R.T. was mentioning just now about faith. And, and James says we're to pray in faith because a double-minded man, a man that's got two minds, a man that's half here and half there. Sometimes he believes, sometimes he doesn't. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We're not meant to be, as it were, divided and uh, half a foot here and half a foot here. We're not meant to be in two camps at the same time. And when we're really in trouble, have you ever noticed this in the Bible? When we are really in trouble, we appeal to God's knowledge. Have you ever noticed this in, in the scriptures, how sometimes God asks us something and, and we don't know? And we just say to him, Lord, I don't know. You know. You know all about me. Have you ever noticed verses like that? You remember how Jesus came to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, well, well Lord, you know. You know. Yeah, I do. Peter, do you love me? He asked the question again. Yes, Lord, you know. Peter, he says, Jesus, do, do you really love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. When you're in trouble, you appeal to God's knowledge. Lord, I, 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 maybe I don't even know the answer to your question, but, but, but you know everything. I'm just leaving myself in your hands. You know everything. When you're in doubt, when you're struggling, when you're divided, when you've got, when you've got a double-minded, appeal to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, you know everything. I don't even understand myself, but you know, you understand me. You appeal to God's knowledge. Or remember how it's put in, in 1 John, where John says, if we know, if our heart does not condemn us, and we feel happy and, and clean and content in the presence of God, then we know that as we pray, we have what we pray for. If our heart is of the truth, we, we know. But whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. You ever find your heart is condemning you? You try and pray, and as you're trying to pray, you, you feel bad about something, or you feel bad about this, and you oh, Lord, can, can I really pray at all? And you're struggling. Well, appeal to God. He knows everything. 
And he is greater than your heart. He is more merciful to you than you even are to yourself. Even when you, as it were, condemning yourself, he's bigger, he's greater. And even when you're not quite sure whether what you did was right or wrong, maybe you're you're feeling a bit guilty or or you're not quite sure where you're coming from, appeal to his knowledge. Say to him, Lord, Lord, I, I don't even know where I'm coming from, but you know everything. You know everything. You know all about me. Appeal to his knowledge. And he is greater than your heart. He is less condemning than you are condemning even of yourself. When you're divided and not quite sure where you're, where you're coming from and where you're going to, appeal to his knowledge. This is what I mean by, by the unity of man. We're meant to be flowing in a kind of united way, not with bits and pieces going all over the place, in a kind of assurance of the Lord, assured by the Spirit, assured by our, our knowledge of God's will in our lives. This is the way we are, we are meant to be, although often we're not. And when we're struggling, we appeal to God's knowledge and God's mercy and God's kindness. And we cast ourselves upon him and seek to be united in faith before him once again. So that's what I mean by the unity of man. We're meant to have this kind of a totality and unity before God. Unites my hearts. Make, make me not lots of bits and pieces. Make me flow all in one direction. Unites my heart to fear your name, says Psalm 86. But then there are times in the Bible where the Bible does talk about us as though we are a kind of duality. And it especially does it in, t- in connection with death. If there's any point where man falls into two bits, it's when we die. That's the one time when the Bible does have a kind of strong duality. Because the Bible says... When God created us, he did put together two elements and he fused them together to make them one. And the verse I'm quoting here is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When, when God created man, it says that God formed man of the dust of the ground. He was a physical entity made of the same stuff that uh, the dust of planet Earth consists of. The 92 elements, the common 92 elements, not the extra ones the scientists made, but the common ones that are there by nature. The 92 elements that consist, that that, that make up the, the dust of the earth, God made man out of that. And we are just dust. We are, we're mainly water. We are about 95% water. And a few other bits of carbon, a few other things thrown in. We, we're just the dust of the earth. And one day, sorry to tell you this, but one day the the body goes back to the dust again. We are made of dust. But uh, the Bible says that when God was creating the human person, he made man of the dust of the ground, but he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed into his, this, this piece of dust, he breathed into this, this dead-like corpse, which had no life in it, no, no, nothing there, it was just a dust, piece of dust. He breathed into this dust of the ground the breath of life. And the word there is a fairly rare word. It's not the word soul or spirit or anything like that. It's a fairly rare word. In Hebrew, in Hebrew it's neshama, which just means breath. It's a fairly uncommon word. He, he, he breathed breath into this dust, and man became a living 
creature. But there the word is soul. Man became a living soul. And notice what the word soul means in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the word soul includes the body. Into this dust, God breathes something which makes him alive. And there's something, this non-material breathed into him. And this, this dust with something non-material in it becomes a living soul. And the word soul there is not being used of a, a kind of ghost inside the body. It's being used of the total man. The total man is a living creature, a living soul. The word soul is, is there, is the whole man, and it includes the body. Into, into the body, the breath of God is breathed, and, and, and the, the, the creature becomes a living soul, alive with the, something that is non-material, something over and above the body. So that scripture is, is a bit dualistic. There's two ingredients there, and they are fused together. A man becomes a living creature. But the teaching is that uh, when we come to die, that unity is broken. It's a very strong unity. We don't have to go around thinking that we're two bits. It's a very strong unity, fused together. As I say, you can't totally separate the body from other aspects of the person. It's a very strong unity. We become one living creature. But when we come to die, that duality within the person is broken. And you remember how Ecclesiastes puts it very clearly. It distinguishes between the person, the human person, and uh, the animals. It says when the animals die, their spirit just goes to the ground. But uh, when we come and the dust returns to the earth, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, when the day comes, when the dust returns to the earth as it was, it goes back just to being nothing but physical, it returns to the dust as it was, purely a stuff with no, with no, spirit, no spirit or breath there. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. This, this, this uh, unity breaks down into, into a duality once again. And uh, the dust goes back to dust. The Spirit go goes to God, and God deals with, with the Spirit as it goes into God's presence. And uh, Ecclesiastes says it goes into a judgment day. God judges the human spirit when we die. And so the Bible teaches that in death, a duality reappears. And the dust and the, whatever you want to call it, in Genesis, it's neshama, breath. In Ecclesiastes, it's ruach, spirit. It's got different words. In other places, it might be soul. There's no particular, there's no particular piece of jargon for the person. It's not the spirit or the soul. We, we may use a piece of jargon. You might want to talk about body and soul. That's all right. I have no complaints. But if you do that, remember, you're borrowing Plato's language. You're not using Bible language. Bible language doesn't have that kind of a technical, systematized body and soul. It's not systematized. We can borrow from Plato. That's all right. I don't think it's wicked to do that. But uh, if, you, if you are just using Plato's language, the body and the soul... Remember, your vocabulary is not exactly biblical. You're just borrowing Plato's way of talking. So the teaching is that in death, the person breaks down into two. And uh, the body and the soul separate. There's a lot of talk about this, and uh, theologians sort of argue about it. And there are a lot of people around nowadays who 
argue that that, that can't happen. There are many people around nowadays who, who want to say that man is always physical, that, that he, is, he is never, never in a position where soul and body are separate. Are separate. And uh, man always is physical, he always has a body, he can't ever be without a body. Those people have problems with death. If you, if you never believe that the soul, and, or whatever you want to call it, and the body separate, then what do you do with death? What happens at death? And if you, if you don't believe in a distinction, a dual, some kind of mild dualism, not a, not a hostile dualism, but a, a unit dividing into two, if you believe in some kind of distinction between body and soul, what, what happens in death? Well, if you, if you don't believe that man is any kind of dualism, you have problem giving an account of what happens at death. And what you, what you tend to have to believe is you have to believe, you're driven to believe in what's sometimes called soul sleep. The soul just sort of ceases to exist for a while and it's resurrected. Or, or, or you cease to exist and God recreates you in the final day. And you end up into a kind of doctrine of soul sleep or, or man ceasing to exist until Jesus comes and then he's recreated. Well, I, I can't go into that except to say, I don't think it's in Scripture. In Scripture, you do have a kind of mild dualism. It's not Plato's kind of dualism. In Plato, the body is evil and the spirit is good. And what you want to happen is you want to escape from the, from the body. You want to escape from the prison house. This, is, this body is a kind of prism and it's sort of ugly and it's defiling you and you're hoping to escape. That, that's Plato. In the Bible, the body is not a prison but it is a home. Remember how often the Bible describes us as being like somebody living in a tent. You remember how we're told, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, it says Peter. The body is not like a prism, but it is like a tent home. It's like, it's like being a nomad, camping, camping in the middle of a Maasai land in Africa or something, and you're living in a tent. And you've got a kind of home there, and you're living in this fragile fabric. And the body is like a tent. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 can say, if, if this tent that we live in, if this tent that we live in is taken down, if one, the day comes when our body comes to its end, and the tent in which we live, if the tent which is our earthly home, not our earthly prism, but our earthly home, we, we're happy in the body, it's our home, it's not a prison, it's a home, and we are, as it were, in the body. But if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have another, we have a building from God, we have another body. But notice there's a kind of dualism there. Your, your soul, or whatever word you want to use, you, the person, is no longer in that body, you are in this body. But you do notice, it implies there's a difference between the soul and the, the spirit. There's, there's one soul, two bodies. You lose one body. And if this tent is taken down, we have another, another home. The implication is that the soul, as it were, moves from one body to another body. You can argue when it takes place. I won't go into that. Or you remember what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He says on one occasion he was caught up into the third heaven. He had a vision of, uh, of the glory of Jesus. I know a man who 14 years ago, he's never, he's never told anybody about this before, and he tells the story as if it's somebody else. I know a man, he's talking about himself. 
but he's not doing it in a way that's boastful. He's talking about it as if it's somebody else. I know a man who 14 years ago, he's not mentioned this for 14 years, was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Once again, you see, he appeals to the knowledge of God. God knows. I don't even understand this, but God does, says Paul. But you'll notice he's open to the possibility. He doesn't know, but he's open to the possibility that he actually left his body and went to the, the heavenly glory and saw a vision of the glory of Jesus. I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or not, I don't even know. But it does show us that Paul believed in the possibility that a person could actually be caught up into heaven outside of the body. So there is this kind of, I call it a mild dualism. It's not, it's not body and soul fighting each other. It's not the soul living in a prison, but there is this kind of duality in man, and it breaks down in death. So in that sense, the Bible sometimes talks about us as though we are two, especially in connection with death. And the Bible never talks about us as being three. It never talks about the body goes here, the spirit goes there, the soul goes there. It never divides us into three when it's dealing with death. When it's dealing with death, it only says the body and the spirit, the body and the breath, whatever terms you want to use. But then let's move on. Sometimes the, body, the Bible talks about us as though we are three. And it does it quite a lot. If you, if you read your Bible, you'll often find the, the Bible talking about us uh, as if there, there, are, there are three things there. It does it in many different ways. Let, let me give you a, a number of them. They're all a little bit different. No two of them are precisely the same. The famous one is, is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul is praying, may God sanctify you completely, and may your spirit, your whole spirit, and soul, and body be kept blameless. He talks about us as though we have got three. And at this point, I, I'm wanting you not to think of them as being parts. Don't think of them as being bits in yourself. Think of the, the physical aspect Think of a, something which is soul, it's above the animals, but, but even, even unsaved people have soul, they have mind and logic and reason, there's certain things there which the whole human race has, and spirit, your relationship with God that, that really the world knows very little of. And every area Paul is praying that you might be right with the Lord. That's, that's the famous one. But there are others. Think, think about Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says that we are to walk in the Holy Spirit. And he says, the desires of the flesh are against the flesh. And the desires of the spirit are against, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's a kind of triangle there. Over this side, there's the flesh. And there's something in you which has got this kind of pull of the flesh. Over that side, there's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Not just spirit with a small s, but the Holy Spirit. And there's something in you which wants to obey the Holy Spirit. There's something that is pulling you in the direction of the flesh. There's something that's pulling you in the direction of the Holy Spirit. That you, who are in the middle, do not quite do what you want to do. You do not perfectly obey the lust of the flesh, the, the sinful nature, because the Holy Spirit is there. You don't perfectly obey the Holy Spirit because the flesh is pulling you in a different direction. So you, you don't do either perfectly. You're not perfectly obedient. You're not, a perfect, you're not perfectly sinful either. 
you're somewhere in the middle with two things pulling you in different directions. Which might make you ask the question, well, which one wins? To which I answer, the one that you yield to. There's, there's two things, as it were, pulling at you, pulling at your heart, pulling at you. Paul, Paul uses the word you. Flesh, a certain side of your nature, which is wicked, is pulling you in a certain direction. The Holy Spirit is pulling you in another direction. So there's a triangle there. There's something pulling you one this way, something pulling you this way, and there's you somewhere caught in the middle. There's a triangle there. And which, one, which direction you go, do you go in? The one that you yield to. You yield to the flesh. You'll get more and more and more fleshy and carnal in your life as you go forward. You yield to the Spirit, and those who sow to the Spirit shall back from the Spirit reap the blessings of eternal life. The eternal life will become more and more and more lively within you. You'll have a greater anointing, as our, our tea would put it. Or think of Romans chapter 7. The famous uh, wretched man of Romans chapter 7, which I think is describing conviction of sin. It's a, a man in the flesh, Romans 7, 5 says, in the flesh. It's a man who's in the flesh, who's admiring the law of God. It's, it's not the ordinary non-Christian. It's the unsafe person wanting to keep the law of God. It's not the, the average man who doesn't bother with the law of God. The average man does not delight in the law of God. If anybody who's unsaved in the flesh does delight in the law of God, this is the only thing the law of God will do for him. It will produce a kind of duality in him, or even a triplicity, even a, a, even a triad. And Paul will say, well, look, when I try to keep this law, he's speaking on behalf of the unsaved man trying to live in the flesh and keep the law of God. When I, when I do this, well, I, I see in my members, I see in my body, a law waging against the law of my mind. My mind wants to keep the law of God. And, but but, but uh, I see another law which is pulling me another way. So the good that I want to do, I don't do. And uh, what I don't want to do, that's what I do do. There's, there's two people there. Only it's not two, it's three. Because you are watching the other two. You read, you read Dr. Lloyd-Jones' exposition of Romans 7. He says, it's as though we are three people. And he's right. There's, there's one person trying to obey God, not doing too well. There's another person there. <clears throat> he just likes the flesh anyway. The, the, the law is in, is in the members of his body. There's a third person watching the other two and, and, and wondering what's going on. And saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me? Who should deliver me from the body of this death? We'll come back to the body. It is the body that's causing the problem. The body has fallen, and, and he can't deal with sin, and, and one's pulling him one way. He's like three people, one wanting to obey God, another not wanting to obey God, and a third person watching the other two. And he's divided and confused and doesn't know where he's going. And he's full of anxiety and he's wretched and he's miserable. And, and, and he, he's got no answer. Who should deliver me? He doesn't even know where deliverance might come from. And he knows the problem is the body. He knows it will go on forever. Whoever can deliver me from the body of this death. That's what it's like to try to keep the law of God without Jesus. That when an unsaved person tries to keep the law of God, this is where he ends up. Read, read, read the story of Luther. Read the story of Augustine. Read, read any person who's, who's, as it were, desperately trying to find the law, but not turning to Jesus. And he goes into this kind of agony and find this kind of this kinds of triplicity within himself. But then you find this kind of threefoldness in another way. Think, think of verses like this. Think of Titus chapter one and verse twelve, where Paul is saying the grace of God 
comes to our rescue, saves us, and then the grace of God trains us. The grace of God doesn't just mean uh, that God's not bothered about sin. People sometimes misunderstand the word grace. Grace is not just God's not bothering about sin. That's not the meaning of the word grace. No, grace is God's mercy and kindness. But it's not that grace just ignores our sins. No, no, Titus says, and Paul says, writing to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, training us, Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, now notice this, to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world. And you often find that kind of triplicity, that threefoldness. Sober is being in control of yourself. Upright is being straight with people. Godly is your relationship to God. There's a threefold relationship there. You relate to yourself, you relate to others, you relate to God. There's a threefoldness in your being. And you have to attend to each of the three. God wants you to be sober, in control of yourself. God wants you to be upright, straight with people. God wants you to be godly in relationship to God. Or think of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus tells his disciples not to do their righteousness before people, and then he gives three examples. And it's the same, it's the same triad again. He says, so when you give alms, when you give to the needy, and you give alms, don't blow a trumpet about it. And when you pray, don't, don't be on the street corners. And when you fast, do you notice the same thing? Giving, that's others. Praying, that's God. Fasting, that's disciplining yourself. Same three again. It's like the same triad. You relate to yourself, you discipline yourself. That's what fasting is. You relate to God, that's what prayer is. You give to others when they're in need. That's what relating to people consists of. The same kind of triad. And so the Bible has often got this uh, two-ness and three-ness in it. And uh, we have to, as it were, learn to handle ourselves. And sometimes we, we talk to ourselves. Have you ever noticed this in the Bible? Have you ever noticed how the people of the Bible talk to themselves? The great, the great example of this is Psalm 42. You notice how in, in the famous uh, Psalm 42, David talks about himself. He says, why, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to his soul. He's talking to his inner person. You know, who are you? How come, how come you're cast down? Why are you? Why are you? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Then he starts preaching to himself, hoping God, trusting God. You'll, you'll again praise him. Who's he preaching to? He's preaching to himself. Or you smile. Great secret of the Christian life is learning to preach to yourself. I've learned as a pastor, as a preacher and a pastor, I've learned a little bit how to help myself when I have spiritual problems. Sometimes I have spiritual problems. Everybody does, including pastors. And I've learned how to handle it. This is what I do. I say to myself, imagine that you were somebody else. And somebody comes to you one day and says, Pastor, you know, I've got this problem. You know, I've got it with my wife or I, I get too tired or... I've got this little sexual temptation or I'm really panicky about money. And somebody comes to you and they, they bring this problem. And I say to myself, what would you say to them? And I say, well, I know exactly what I'd say. I'd say this, I'd say this, and I'd say this. And, you know, I'm a pastor. I know my Bible. I, I, I can counsel them. I can advise them. And then I say, 
That's what I've got to say to myself. You see, you learn to treat yourself as though you're somebody else. You see, you're not, when, you, when you're too close to yourself, well, you're too prejudiced. You're too sympathetic with yourself. Pretend that you are somebody else. Pretend that your soul is out there somewhere and you've got, you've got to deal with this, with this guy called your soul and tell him what he needs to know. Deal with him as though he's a separate person. And that, that releases you from prejudice. You're not, quite so tough on, not, you're not quite so easy on somebody else as you are on yourself. On yourself, you can't even see a plank of wood in your own eyes. In somebody, somebody else, you can even see a speck of wood. Well then, pretend that you're somebody else. And you can see the speck of wood. And then preach to yourself. You say, soul, why are you cast down? Why are you doing this? Hoping God, are you a believer are you, or are you not a believer? Do you have the Holy Spirit or don't you? Preach to yourself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? You preach to yourself. That's what David did. And I'll remember you, I'll remember you. And I'll say to God, to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? I'll go and I'll pray. Why? And he ends the psalm in that way. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God. For I should again praise him, my salvation and my God. You learn to handle yourself. And you do it by preaching to yourself. You, you do it by imagining. You, you, can, you can play this little trick on yourself. You imagine that you're somebody else. And you come, somebody's coming to you with this problem. And you, you, find, you sort out his problem. And you preach to him. Only the person you're preaching to is yourself. And that helps you. And you're thinking objectively. And you're detaching yourself from yourself. You're dividing yourself in order to counsel the other person. The other person is you. Learn to, learn to be a person who talks to his soul in that way. And so there are these various uh, things that you have to deal with. Well, I wanted to get to the body, and I, I've not got to it, but I've got about four minutes to tell you about the body. Number one, the body is not evil in itself. You mustn't treat the body as though it's something wicked or inferior. There's nothing, there's nothing sinful about matter. In the ancient world, they often thought that uh, bodies were evil just because they were material. If you've ever watched and listened and watched Paul preaching to the Greek philosophers, remember Paul once had a chance to preach to Greek philosophers on Areopagus or Mars Hill in Athens. They said, well, come, come and tell us about your message. They, they wanted every day to hear some new thing. And they hear that Paul's got something interesting. So they, so they say, come, come and preach to us. So Paul says, yeah, all right. And he starts uh, preaching to these Greek philosophers. And they listen very carefully. He says, you, you're guilty of idolatry. You know there's some God out there you don't know. The, I saw this idol to the unknown God. You know there's a God there somewhere. In him we live and move and have our being. He goes on arguing. He's not, he's not quoting the Bible. He's, he, they're not, they don't believe in the Bible anyway. He's not appealing to the Bible. He's appealing to what's obvious and facts that they all know about. And he goes on and on. And they listen to him quite, quite patiently until, until he gets to mention the body. When he gets to the point where he says, well, one day there's going to be a judgment day. And uh, God has really assured us that he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world. And he's given an assurance of this by raising this man physically, bodily, from the dead. He gets to the point where he mentions the resurrection of the body. And, these, and Greek philosophers don't believe in the resurrection of the body. They don't, even want to, they don't even want a resurrection of the body. They want to be some sort of ghost floating around in space, playing their guitar forever and ever and ever. They don't want to be bodies. They don't have bodies anyway. And when he gets to talking about the body, the resurrection of the body, when they heard of the resurrection of the body, 
it says, some mocked. When he gets to talking about resurrection of the body, they start laughing at him. How could you possibly believe in this dirty, disgusting, filthy old thing called the body? They, they don't believe in any, any kind of glory of the body. But we are different. Our bodies were created by God. And when God created our world, he saw all things, and they were all exceedingly good. He made nothing that was bad. No material thing was bad. Any, anything was created by God is in itself good. But sin is not the thing. Sin is what you do with the thing. Sin is not your body. Sin is what you do with your body. Nothing inferior about the body in itself. And... Uh, the Christian church hasn't always seen that. There's often a kind of hostility in the, to the body and the story of the church. It comes from Plato and Augustine, who was a bit Platonist. That's why Catholic priests don't get married. That's why people don't always like the idea that Jesus had brothers. I mean, physical, sexual there, they don't like it. That's why sometimes there's a kind of hostility against sexuality, as though it's dirty in itself, which is not. No, no, don't ever despise the body. And I end with this. The Bible tells us to glorify God in the body. Our bodies do not belong to us. They are united to Jesus Christ. We are one spirit and body and flesh with Jesus. And we glorify God in our bodies. And one day this body is going to be raised to glory. We'll, have, we'll not be ghosts floating around in heaven. We'll not be angels or spirits forever and ever. The final hope of the Christian church is our resurrection bodies upon a resurrected planet. A new heavens, a new earth in which there's righteousness and we'll be glorified in our bodies. And we start glorifying God in our bodies even now. Well, I haven't finished, but I'll stop for now. Let's stand and pray. Our Father, teach us to preach to ourselves. Teach us to handle ourselves. Teach us to be detached and tell, tell ourselves what we need. To say, oh my soul, hope in God, I shall yet praise him. Teach us to handle ourselves in this way, and even in these days together, teach us to live in this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.